Welcome everyone to another regularly scheduled rerun for our rerun today. I'm taking the opportunity to pull an episode full of positive commentaries as they are relatively few and far between these days. And speaking of not particularly positive commentaries right now, members are joining Amanda and I in some cathartic yet hopefully productive complaining from our latest bonus episode. It's the kind of complaining that feels good, but also at least tries to peel back some of the layers of our society to understand why it is the way it is. And I'll, I'll let you in on it a little bit. Uh, our general conclusion is that we can't have nice things because we're too scared. Yeah, in essence, we think that tyrannical governments are lurking around every corner, and that's why we can't give poor people food. So to understand what all of that means, join us in the catharsis and join in on supporting our work in the most important way you can. Sign up as a member at patreon.com slash left, or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now, enjoy. Everyone can be happy. The world's not a zero-sum game. When you are better off and do better, it helps me. Same with me. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode, and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from This Is Hell, the Tom Hartman Program, and two TED Talks. What if there was a different, more compassionate, less selfish way to approach economics that could lead to less inequality and suffering and might actually make it so we don't completely destroy the planet? I mean, that would be great, right? Well, our next guest thinks she's found it in Buddhist economics. Here to explain what a Buddhist kind of economics could be, economist Claire Brown is author of Buddhist Economics, an Enlightened Approach to the Digital Science. Welcome to This is Hell, Claire. It's wonderful to join you, Chuck. Thank you. Claire is an economics professor at UC Berkeley and a practicing Buddhist at UC Berkeley. She now teaches a seminar on Buddhist economics. Over the past uh, couple of weeks, every person I've told that we were going to have on an economist to discuss Buddhist economics, they all asked if it was a contradiction, an oxymoron, suggesting that economics and Buddhism simply don't go together, that the exchange of currency for goods and services or any kind of economic relationship is simply not Buddhist. What does that either say about our Western view of Buddhism or to what degree are uh, Buddhism and economics inherently incompatible? That's a good question because it is oxymoronic in a way in that economics is all conceptual, Buddhism is experiential, and yet the Buddhist teachers quickly will tell us that that's okay, we need to think about ideas and concepts, and, and there's a strong tradition in Buddhism of inquiry, like the Dalai Lama says, don't accept anything without inquiring into it. Struggle it, push it. And, you know, he himself, he's really pushed uh, neuroscience and thinking about how does the brain work. So there's a, there's a long tradition in Buddhism of an intellectual insight. And I was teaching Econ 1, and we were doing a terrible job about explaining inequality and global warming, our two biggest challenges. And we assumed people were selfish although all these lab tests in economics showed people, in fact, are altruistic. I was out walking my greyhound, and I thought, how would Buddha teach Econ 1? He certainly wouldn't teach it the way I'm teaching it. I, so I started thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, I understand. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, you write that uh, economics affects how we live and how happy we are, yet most people ignore economics even though it has a powerful impact on our lives and our future. Take our two biggest worldwide challenges, global warming and income inequality. United Nations climate scientists warned that time is running out if we are to avoid destroying our planet and our way of life. Income inequality rivals that of the Gilded Age with economists predicting that inequality will continue to grow along with political turmoil. Both of these challenges are profoundly influenced by economics. Overcoming them will require a complete rethinking of our economic system, our lives, and what matters to us. We must learn to live in harmony with nature 
and with one another. But there are those on the right and the left that see economics and living in harmony with nature at odds with one another. One another. That is that any attempt at living in harmony with nature will undermine profits and anything that creates large profits is likely bad for the environment as if it's a zero-sum game. So how possible is it to have an economic system that lives in harmony with nature? Won't living in harmony with nature cut into profits, thus lowering our quality of life when it comes to access to goods and services, especially goods? Well, we are at a point right now in heating up the atmosphere that three major test uh, studies out of major universities say, you know what, if we don't learn to live in harmony with nature and care for nature, we're going to have massive losses in global assets that we can't afford not to immediately go to reducing climate change and global warming. So, so we already know, in fact, we can no longer afford to ignore what we're doing to the atmosphere and our polluted air and water. So I, I think that's not an issue anymore. I think the issue is convincing the fossil fuel industry and, and the enormous impact they have on politics that they can't keep digging up coal, oil, and gas. We already know that we have to keep enormous amounts of known reserves in the ground. And we, we know exactly how much right now we have to keep in the ground to not overheat the earth. We know all these things, and it's a social choice to decide that we will meet the the target of the UN goals of not overheating the Earth. We can keep we can keep the increase in um, below the two degrees centigrade that we all agreed upon. So, uh, but shouldn't people of I mean Buddhism aside, shouldn't people of any religion, especially through the lens of their religion? also see that something is clearly wrong? I mean, I was raised a Christian. I'm a recovering uh, Roman Catholic. But if I were reply, uh, if I were to, you know, put, apply what I know about Christianity to free market economics, especially considering that suffering and disparity, uh, my religious sensibilities would be very offended. So why in, pati- in particular should a student of Buddhism have difficulty grappling with the troubling disconnect between free market economics and the issues of the real world? Shouldn't anybody who believes in nearly any religion see the same problems? Right. Some people might think, oh, this is like spiritual economics. We care about the human spirit. Because you're right, every major religion has an equivalent of the golden rule, and the equivalent of caring for others and, and not killing people or the planet. We, all the, that goes across all religions. Um, and every single major religion had some kind of a statement that supported the Paris Agreement of 2015. But where where Buddhism comes in for me is that this belief that people are altruistic and kind, that we all have an inner Buddha nature that with love, compassion, and wisdom. And there's no God. There's no sort of external force that tells us what to do or how to do it. So we we need to understand that we're all interconnected, and both with each other and with the planet. And that's a really basic assumption in Buddhism and in Buddhist economics. Because the minute you say, oh, everything's impermanent, we're all interconnected, then you have a completely different way of thinking, what do you want from your economy, and how do you maximize social welfare? Because now, how well off everyone is doing matters, and it doesn't just mean how much their income is. That's one part of the picture, but even more importantly, it matters, are they living a meaningful life with their relationships, with their community, with their nation? Do they have health care, education, all the things that they need to develop their full potential? It's a very different way of thinking about what do we want from our economy, especially those of us in rich countries where we already have way too, too much to consume. You write that free market economics assumes that markets produce optimal outcomes and people have the resources to create satisfying lives. In measuring national well-being, economics focuses only on income and consumption and excludes many of the pressing issues that define our modern life. And I'm so glad that you brought this up because I think this is a really important thing that people have this disconnect between economics and their daily life. How much do we disconnect the pressing issues that define our modern life from economics? How much do we do we 
hold the economy responsible or consider its role in the pressing issues of our modern lives? And how much do we put it aside as something that's inevitable and therefore shouldn't really be discussed in why we are happy or unhappy? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point because one of the problems with inequality is that growing inequality makes almost everyone unhappier. We, we define our well-being and sort of how well we're doing by looking at those above us. And so when the people at the tops just keep getting all of the fruits of economic growth and have more lavish houses and vacations and whatever, and our incomes are just stagnant, all of a sudden everyone's feeling less well-off because, relatively speaking, we are. And then we were told time and time again that, all this inequality will eventually lead to disharmony and social unrest. And you know what? It has. So now we're, we're sort of reaping the fruits of inequality. People are feeling dissatisfied with their lives. There is enormous, um, as you know, social unrest and political turmoil. And people aren't feeling very good about what's going on, both in their daily lives but also in, in society. So we're we're sort of at an impasse, and I think a lot of it has grown out of the rise in inequality combined with the fight over global warming, because the fossil fuel industry has pretty much taken over the politics of the country and has tried to convince people that we can just keep going with the fossil fuel industry and economy when, of course, we can't. And and as Tikhon Han says, when the Earth is sick. We're sick, and I think that's really true. You write that you uh, you ask what makes people happy. This question takes us at the, to the heart of the difference between free market economics and Buddhist economics. Our human nature should our economy make us happy, and why don't we look at the economy when we see an epidemic of depression happening across the United States? Why do we not look at the thing that we all share in, which is the economic system that we live in? Boy, is that a good question? Because I don't, I don't know the answer, but we need to know the answer because we do know that inequality has. If you look across countries, countries with more inequality have lower indices of well-being and happiness. People have they're less healthy, they're less educated, they have more crime problems, they they aren't socially um, doing well or economically doing well. And if you reduce inequality across countries, these social well-being indicators and economic well-being indicators get better. So so we're creating, and, and by the way, that's a social choice. Our inequality and our global warming is a social choice by our government policies and our social norms. So we really have to say, gee, you know, we could be doing so much better if we would reduce inequality, if we would make a firm commitment to build a clean energy economy, a modern economy, which, by the way, would actually be a really healthy economy. Um, every roadmap has said that. We have the technology, and we could build a modern infrastructure and create a modern competitive economy at the cost of about 1% of GDP, which is nothing. Um, so it's like we have the technology... We can afford it. We just need to do it. If it's not what you want, you can change it. If it's not what you want, don't take it. If it's losing, it's luster, baby. Just call me anytime. Cut it loose, sing it out with the oh, oh, oh. So Louise and I are watching Elementary, uh, the Sherlock Holmes show. And this guy makes this comment. You know, they're, they're like, you know, uh, you know, did you kill him or whatever? You know, and, and he's like, and he, and he demonstrates to them. He proves to them. He's got 30 days to live. He's dying. He's dying of uh, re recurring, relapsing, something or other leukemia of some kind. Um, and he's like, you know, I, you know, I, I, under, I understand why I could be considered a suspect. I have no fear of the death penalty. But I'm not. And it turned out he was or he wasn't. I frankly don't remember now. But um, the I'm sitting there going, whoa. 
I just got an epiphany. You know, this is like, whoa. Back in 1634, when Thomas Hobbes wrote Leviathan, he said famously that without the iron fist of church or state, man would revert to his primal nature. I'm paraphrasing here, but it's close to the actual words you can find when you, you know, plug Thomas Hobbes and Leviathan into a search engine. But man will revert to his his primal nature, which is, he said, without, without and, and lose civilization. Without civilization, there'll be no means of transportation. There will be no means of moving heavy objects from place to place. There will be no arts, no letters, and life will be nasty, brutish, and short. And that was the understanding that people had in the 17th century of how humans lived for 200,000 years. We were all, we all lived, you know, cavemen, beat each other up. Life was horrible. Turns out the more we learn, the more we discover that life was actually pretty damn good for most of those 200,000 years. And it depended on where you lived. But so, so he starts out with kind of an affirmation of the story that is told in, in Genesis, which is that we're all evil. God is angry with all of us. And it's all because of some woman made a mistake, you know, because Eve ate the apple. And therefore, every man born of and there's all kinds of misogyny built into that story. But it's, you know, and, and it came out of that culture of the time and all that kind of stuff. But, but basically, the story is, you know, all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short and are in need of salvation, essentially. Whether that salvation is religious or whether it's political or whether it's whatever. We can't trust ourselves. And so, and this has become the core conservative argument ever since then. If we can't trust ourselves to govern ourselves, and we all agree and understand that governance is necessary, then how do we figure out who's going to govern us? Now, keep in mind, this is 1634. There there were no democracies at that point in time. I mean, there were some, some, some small, functional, semi-democratic states in, the, in what were called the lowlands, what is now Holland or the Netherlands. But that was pretty much it. So this was, you know, uh, a statement that in a way kind of justified things. But Hobbes went on to suggest, but self-governance should be possible if we can just figure out who the good people are. Which then led into two lines of thinking. One was... From the religious folks, this was the whole John Calvin, Calvinistic worldview. Oh, well, the way we find the good folks is they're the people who God has blessed. Which then leads to the second line of thinking. How do you know who God blessed? I mean, do you go into a monastery and pull out a bunch of monks and say, okay, you're now the president, you're the head of the Senate, you're the, you know, is that what you do? What, is there some kind of conspicuous visual evidence of God's blessing? Are we looking for handsome people as opposed to people who are less attractive? You know, how do we know? And the answer, of course, that was provided by the wealthy people of the time was wealth. Money is proof of God's blessing. And so rich people should rule. Because people are essentially evil and need that iron fist of church or state. Well, then, you know, 100 years later, in the, in the late 1700s, uh, I, I think it was in 1748, as I recall, that uh, John Locke wrote his second treatise on government, and maybe 20 years after that, that, that uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, wrote uh, The uh, uh, Man's Rise from Savagery. I'm, I'm forgetting the exact title, but his, his famous book, you know, about the, the noble savage. In other words, suggesting that, no— the natural state of humans is not to have, you know, nasty, short, brutish lives. The natural state of humans is to be decent to each other. And the few people who step outside of that realm, the people who do commit murder, the people who do commit robbery and rape, they're defective or broken people. They're not normal. And that became the founding principle of the United States. It got essentially written into the Declaration of Independence by Thomas Jefferson, who was a big believer in this, at least as it applied to white men. 
got written into the Declaration of Independence by Jefferson. It got essentially written into the Constitution. I mean, it's, the, it's a founding principle of our country that we can govern ourselves. Now, conservatives to this day are fighting that, both religious conservatives who are saying, oh, no, 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 you, you, you need to follow whatever Jerry Falwell Jr. tells you, and political conservatives who are associated with billionaires who are saying, and giant corporations who are saying, no, 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 it's, you know, we, we really need to just kind of let the, the magical free market, right, which has become its own religion. But the epiphany that I had was kind of putting these two things together. If Hobbes was right, if conservatives are right, that the basic nature of humans is evil, that the only thing that is restraining any of us, me, Shano, Danielle, Chris, Troy, you, from running out tomorrow morning or right this second and just killing somebody for the sheer pleasure of it or robbing them because they got something that you want or, you know, uh, committing, you know, raping them or something. The, the only thing that's preventing us from doing that is fear of punishment. This is the theory behind the death penalty. Right? The death penalty deters people from killing people because they're afraid of dying. They're afraid of the death penalty. Now, that's the that's the conservative logic, and that's the worldview that has prevailed since the 1600s. And it suddenly hit me watching this elementary show last night that this guy just gave us the perfect test. You know, I'm sitting in a city right now, Washington, D.C., of about a million people. And there's probably somewhere between five and 50,000 of those million people, you know, between, what would that be, a, a, a a hundredth, uh, five hundredths of a percent or uh, five tenths of a percent who are dying and know that they're dying. And some of them are probably still capable of walking around and, and, you know, pulling a gun on you. So why is it that when people get the death sentence, and it eventually happens to all of us, uh, some, you know, get notice, some don't, I'm inclined personally to not want the notice, but whatever. Why is it that people don't run out and become criminals? Because they, ha- they don't have to worry about punishment. Right? They're going to die anyway. Well, the obvious answer is that that whole conservative worldview all along was wrong. That, that uh, Rousseau and Jefferson were right, and Locke, and Hobbes, and, and uh, you know, all the conservative philosophers that have basically come since him, Ed, Sir Edmund Burke, you know, was, uh, you know, one of the, the great proponents of the idea that, you know, humans are essentially evil. That's why we have to have government. It's hard to You write that Buddha taught that all people suffer from their own mental states with feelings of discontent that come from desiring more and more. The Dalai Lama tells us that the feeling of not having enough and wanting more does not arise from the inherent desirability of the objects we are seeking, but from our own mental illusions. Buddha taught us how to end suffering by changing our states of mind, which translates into finding happiness through living a meaningful life. Now, this reminded me of a conversation I recently had with uh, Vivian Raoul, who has a new book out on subvertising, that is, uh, subverting advertising in public spaces. Vivian started his book with a quote from Sut Jahali, a professor of communications at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, whose work focuses on cultural studies, advertising, media, consumption. Jahali says, 20th century advertising is the most powerful and sustained system of propaganda in human history, and its cumulative 
Cultural effects, uh, unless quickly checked, will be responsible for destroying the world as we know it. As it achieves this, it will be responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of non-Western peoples and will prevent the peoples of the world from achieving true happiness. Simply stated, our survival as a species is dependent upon minimizing the threat from advertising and the commercial culture that has spawned it. How much is advertising, in your opinion, an impediment to having a Buddhist approach to economics? How much is advertising contributing to our discontent? How much is it brainwashing us in a way that makes it so the public will be opposed to Buddhist economics? Oh, I think advertising is powerful, and I love the quote you just did. I just think it's completely um, pushing the right button. And then the question becomes, how do we sort of get around this? But, you know, a lot of people, when they hear the Dalai Lama explaining there's nothing inherent in those goods that is going to make you happy. You go out and you chase these goods, and we have many economic studies now and say when you go to buy something or you win something, or you're happy for just a very short time, and then you revert back to your sort of unhappy state or previous state of happiness, and then you start chasing the goods again. And it's just this endless, relentless chasing of goods or power or sex or whatever it is you're dying to have. Um, and that's what you want to let go of and say, oh. So in Buddhist economics, everyone needs to have the basics and, and enough to be comfortable. And then we want to help them think about, oh, what's really important to me? My, how do I develop my relationships and have experiences that are meaningful? How do I develop my inner life so that no longer am I out there chasing materialistic goods and, and instead I have a family life, a work life that's meaningful and and feels good and makes me happy. So one thing about Buddhist economics I like is we're told continually by the Dalai Lama and others, everyone can be happy. The world's not a zero-sum game. The nice thing about Buddhist economics is when you are better off and do better, it helps me. Same with me. So you think of Indra's net. Have you ever seen Indra's net? No, I have not. Oh, it's great. It's like this infinite net, and every single knot has a jewel in it that reflects all the other jewels. So anytime something happens with one jewel, it's reflected in all the jewels. And so that's the Buddhist image of interconnectedness, which, which I happen to like a lot. Um, and you combine that with impermanence. And so if you have, we're all interconnected, we're all permanent. So by the way, while you're chasing all these goods and services, what are you getting for it? And people realize, oh, it's impermanent. It's like I have a closet full of crap. So we say at some point, let's move from closet full to mindful, from the market economy to the Buddhist economy. You write that on the same weekend in January 2015, two very different articles appeared. One in the highly respected journal Science reported that threats to our environment endanger our way of life. The other in the New York Times described the servicing of private super yachts that require professional crews and cost millions of dollars. The Science article reported that an international team of 18 scientists have found that four of the nine Earth biophysical processes crucial to maintaining the stability of the planet have become dangerously compromised by human activity. The New York Times article reported that more than one-fifth of the estimated 5,000 superyachts in the world were actually purchased in the last five years during the Great Depression. You add, I suspect that many more people paid attention to the New York Times article than the science article, despite our knowledge about the disastrous damage that we are inflicting on the earth. Consumption uh, continues to fascinate and accelerate. Materialistic drives are pushing us toward the sixth extinction, sixth extinction as many as are now referring to today's ongoing extinction of uh, species. To what explains why we are still fascinated with hyperconsumption while not being as interested in the way that same uh, hyperconsumption is destroying the planet? It is, and and I think the yacht story is just a wonderful story. But and and actually, out I, you know I live in the Silicon Valley, so when I go out, I've actually heard CEO Titans bragging to each other exactly how long their yachts are, and they do it in inches. It's like quite shocking. Wow. I've even heard captains of the finance industry bragging about their wine openers. And, and how exactly they work and how fancy they are, whatever the newest, latest gadget is. And those are the positional status goods. It's like they sit around and compare and brag. It's like, oh, my gosh. But, you know, if you, even though I think 
the rest of us are somewhat intrigued by reading about or hearing about these things. Um, I think, in fact, though, when you talk to people seriously about it, like when I talk to my students about it and we talk about these examples, they're totally appalled. They can't believe that the people that we should be respecting, our CEOs and, and the, the business leaders we have, are sitting around talking about how long their yachts are and how they open their wine. It's like, what? So I think actually at some level, people are quite disgusted by it. Does Buddhist economics, uh, I'm going to hate the way I'm phrasing this, but uh, does Buddhist economics mean more government interference as the right would see it in the economy as free market supporters would call it government interference? Yes, yes, it does. It means government programs. The whole point for a social democracy is an Government structure markets. Even the free market has government structures because the government has to provide rule of law and the government has to protect private property. But if you move over to social democracies or another form of market economies, then the government is structuring the economies to get the outcomes they want for equity, the outcomes they want for sustainability, the outcomes they want for reducing suffering and shared prosperity. So, and, and you get the outcomes you want for, you know, having communities, family life, balance, balancing work, um, and having decent jobs. The government plays a very, very important role. And the government's going to play a role in any economy. It's just a matter of what, what role and how big a role. But let me tell you, it is true that some people have bought this bill of goods that somehow they have this enormous right of freedom of choice, and they don't want any interference. But what these people don't understand is that we already have social norms and, and all kinds of ways that our behavior is, fortunately, um, you know, construed and, and sort of formed, and so we all get along together. And the other thing that sort of makes me sad but laugh at the same time is that you'll you'll hear the sort of the alt right say nobody's going to tell me what to do, and yet they turn around and want to tell other people what to do <laughs> in terms of sex or race or gender or whatever. So it there's a lot of inconsistency, and and to be honest, I don't ever expect the alt right to do or think anything is okay with Buddhist economics, but they're a very small part of the population. I do think that Trump's followers would be more than willing to at some point say, you know, you're right. We we need to have a way that our economy is working much better because, look, our towns are devastated. And we need to find a way to come together and feel good about how we're living and how we're working. Um, but that's okay. I don't ever expect the alt-right to like what I'm doing. You're right. You don't have to be a Buddhist to embrace a Buddhist approach to economics. You need only share the Dalai Lama's belief that human nature is gentle and compassionate and embrace the idea that economics can be a force for good, one that goes beyond self-centered materialism. So is uh, Buddhist economics about the way I personally, individually engage with the current economic system? That is, can I simply start acting in a more compassionate manner when making purchasing decisions and fighting against my own self-centered materialism? Are my own personal uh, purchasing decisions, a step toward a systemic change that could lead to more compassionate, even Buddhist economics? Or is this more about not just having an individual or doing something with your own consumer decisions, but trying to get this to be the system that we need to have? Oh, Chuck, you, you live Buddhist economics. Of course, you don't need to be a Buddhist. All you need to do is care about the human spirit, care about people all over the world and helping them live a better life and uh, stop, you know, help help nature, help the environment. And you do it all the time with your show. Your show is like a living example of how to dedicate your work and your time and your energy to try and help people understand what what's going on and how the world works and how we can make the world work better for everybody. Well, I You're like a natural Buddhist economist. <laughs> so you write that free market e economics holds that human nature is self-centered and that people care only about themselves as they push ahead to maximize their incomes and fancy lifestyles. Uh, so how much do you think free market economics have made us more 
self-centered? How much do we recognize the impact that an economic system, that this economic system, is having on our decision-making, our politics, our personality, even the way that we relate with other human beings? Oh, I think it has an enormous impact. And that's why in my book I really push and devote a chapter to measuring economic performance holistically and not by income per capita. And I think it's really important that we totally rethink and how are we going to measure economic performance. And there are lots of ways to do it. We just need to do it. But then also I just saw a study not long ago that said somebody studied on what happens to students after they take an economics course. Do they become more selfish? And the answer was yes, they do. Actually taking a free market economics course, students start to behave more selfish and in, you know, when they're taken to the lab to play games. I really want to explore the question of what the world would look like if we designed for generosity. This is a cover of Time magazine, May 11, 1953. It features Vinoba Bhave. Vinoba Bhave was named by Gandhi as sort of his official successor. Big shoes to fill in. Now, post-independence in India, Vinoba did something incredible. He realized that there was a lot of inequity in the country, and he wanted to solve it. Sounds a little familiar. And he goes around, so he decides to go on a walking pilgrimage. He goes from village to village. And in each village, he tells the rich landowners to donate one-sixth of their land to the poor landowners. No coercion, no compulsion, just purely for the spirit of generosity. He appealed to their inner transformation. He ended up walking 70,000 kilometers. And through those 70,000 kilometers, more than 5 million acres of land was just donated. Five million acres, that's bigger than the size of Kuwait. That's twice the size of Lebanon. That's almost as big as Israel. And all he did was he would go from in a village, inspire these people, and go on to the next. It ended up being the largest peaceful transfer of land in human history. But how? what was the force? What was the underlying inner transformation that allowed him to do it? A lot of us have been thinking about this, these kinds of questions, and there isn't really a word. So we came up with a word. We call it giftivism. The practice of radically generous acts that change the world. Now, giftivism is different. What you see over there, Gandhi, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, Dalai Lama, Cesar Chavez, you go on down the list, they're all practicing giftivism. And the marker of giftivism is that it's for the 100%. There is no enemy, there is no opponent, because ultimately, our inner transformation is tied to the outer manifestation. All these people recognize that. And that's giftivism. So how can we bring about, naturally, we ask this question, how can we have more of this in the world? So the key question for us was, what designs emerge if we assume that people want to behave selflessly? So by designs, it's institutions, systems, projects. What would emerge if we turned this question on its head? And by on its head, I mean, you know, if you look at economics... It's built on the premise that people aim to maximize self-interest. That's the basic fundamental building block of all economics, is that we are selfish. What happens if you turn that around and say, well, actually, maybe people want to be selfless? So a few of us, back in April 1999, went to a homeless shelter. We said, we want to give, just for the love of it. We don't know what we want to do, but we want to help. We came back, and we ended up building them a website. Felt great, so we told all our friends about it says, hey, this generosity thing, there's really something to it. And all of a sudden, they're like, okay, sounds good. And they come in, and they experience the same thing, and they told their friends, and it started growing. It was very counterculture at the time, because we easily could have made money doing it. But we were saying, we, we weren't just looking for money. We were saying that there's this inner transformation, which is actually beyond money, almost priceless. So 
We, we then looked at it. We had a very interesting thing happen. There was a dot com that went belly up. And when it went belly up, they came to us and they said, hey, can you keep our product alive? Because it's doing a lot of civic good. We said, sure, we'd be happy to. We can try. We were a bunch of volunteers. We didn't know if we could actually run an organization like that. In three months, we doubled all their numbers. We scratched our heads and we said, oh, man, we got institutional capacity. We could do stuff. So then we said, well, what should we do? Well, we should do what no one else is willing to do. Like what? Well, we should do things that, like good news. CNN doesn't put any good news, but if you don't have good news in the world, you're constantly going to be stuck in the fear narrative. Why doesn't CNN have good news? It's very hard to monetize. Then we said, well, maybe there's other things, right? So we started a portal for good news, and then we said, well, what about kindness? Again, very hard to monetize. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have systematic efforts to promote that kind of stuff in the world. So we started a portal to do that. And we started a whole bunch of different projects. And then at some point, we said, why not go offline? What happens if you run a restaurant in this way? What happens if you run a rickshaw in India in this way? What happens if you run an art magazine in this way? In this way, by which I mean the power of generosity, the power of inner transformation. So what ended up happening was that we actually created a whole ecosystem called service space around this kind of an idea. Now, all innovation, if you look at it, is bound by these creative constraints that you put on yourself. So we had three very interesting, curious constraints. The first was we decided that we were going to be all volunteer-run. And you say, okay, well, that's interesting. So instead of you know, having five staff working 40 hours a week, we said we we're going to have 40 volunteers contributing five hours a week. So same amount of output at the end of the day, but an incredible amount of energy, right? What we started unleashing was the power of compassion capital. The second big thing was that we didn't fundraise. We saw a lot of amazing projects. You know, they start out with noble, beautiful intentions. By the 10th year, they're all bogged down in fundraising. By the 20th year, it's like before you do something, you got 20 photographers showing what you're going to do. And, and this, this was just the sad truth of organizing. So we said, is there another way? We don't know. But let's experiment. Let's not fundraise. What that meant was that instead of showing value, we were just focused on adding value. We were doubling down on adding value. And that allowed us to discover all kinds of untapped, undiscovered capital. And the third thing was that we were honoring the process, which meant honoring small acts. And small acts were great, but when they really got connected to each other, we realized that there was this synergy that was happening where one plus one was greater than two. The whole was greater than the sum of the parts. And we, you have two things. By themselves, there are two things. But when you put them together, there's a bond, and that bond actually means something. That bond actually has value. And so we started seeing synergistic capital. So we had these three constraints, but it ended up allowing us to flourish with all kinds of different um, abundance, if you want to call it that. So these small acts of giftivism... When they get connected, it rekindles a gift economy. A gift economy is, of course, very different than a traditional economy because in a gift economy, it's the circulation of these gifts that leads to the vitality of society, not hoarding, not accumulation. Such a gift culture is marked by these four key shifts. The first one is a, difference, is a shift from consumption to contribution. An average American sees 3,500 ads a day. Mostly unconscious, unconsciously. So 3,500 ads a day that are telling you you are incomplete as you are. You need my product, you need my service before you can be complete. So it's very hard to come out of this consumption conditioning. But what if we flip it? What if we open each door and say, what can I give? Instead of saying, what can I get? What can I give? If you start with that, it really changes the whole game. To encourage that, we started a little game called Smile Cards. Now, smile cards, these business-sized wallet cards, you know, you have them in your pocket, and you do a small act of kindness anonymously, and you leave a smile card behind. It tells the recipient that you don't know who did this for you, but keep the chain going. You can do that for someone else. So the classic example is paying toll for the car behind you. And that's great. But what happens when you, when you are that car behind you? Do you pay forward for the person after you? So smile cards becomes an invitation. And imagine if we spread this in all corners of the world. There were, there were these two fellows, these New York consultants, great, very successful guys. They travel a lot. And so they ended up getting upgraded to first class one time. And what they decided to do is they said, hey, let's practice generosity. 
And so they went to a couple in economy and said, sir, ma'am, you've just been upgraded. And they traded seats. Right? And these guys are like, oh my God, I get to be in the first class. And these guys are saying, wow, we made somebody smile. Everybody won. Right? So what happens when you start to look at the world in that way? We look at all the things we receive and ask the question, how can I pay forward and keep the chain going? That's the shift from consumption to contribution. The second shift is from transaction to trust. Right? You can't shake hands with a clenched fist. So... To experiment with this, we started a little project that perhaps lots of you know about because there's there's a restaurant here in Berkeley that I'm going to talk about. It's Karma Kitchen. Karma Kitchen, you walk into Karma Kitchen and you're, you have a meal like you do at any other restaurant, but your check at the end of the meal reads zero. Now it's zero because someone before you paid for your meal and you get to pay forward for people after you. Now you can imagine the business school folks scratching their heads saying, wait a second, how the heck can that work? You mean you just trust people? You know, that's not what we were taught in school. And we ourselves didn't know how long it was going to continue. We just started it as an experiment. We said, let's see how long the chain continues. It's been four years, 26,000 meals. People continue to pay it forward. Spread to D.C. and Chicago and actually all over the world now. So there was a very interesting, I mean, amazing things happen at Karma Kitchen. Um, but there was a very, uh, there was a professor right here at the Haas School of Business, Leif Nelson. He says, we got to study this. There's something's, something's going on, you know. <laughs> so they decide to do an experiment. They go to a cartoon museum. It's a dollar to get into the cartoon museum. And they said, today you get to pay what you want. But put, put whatever you want in that box. People on average gave a dollar twenty-three. Pretty amazing. But then they did went one step further, and they said, instead of putting what, pay what you want in that box, pay directly to the cashier, but still whatever you want. Now, all of a sudden, it humanizes the whole interaction. People on average paid $2. Then they said, let's do Karma Kitchen style and evoke their interconnection. Someone before you has paid for your meal, your, not your meal, someone before you has paid for your tab, and you get to pay forward for people after you. These people who are never even going to be able to look at you in the face and say, thank you. How much would you pay? On average, people gave over $3. Remarkable. So we have to count on people to be generous. When you count on people to be generous, all kinds of beautiful things can happen. The third shift is a shift from isolation to community. Now, community isn't just people coming together. It's how are people coming together. Context really matters. You take a look at a piece of graphite and a piece of diamond made of the same carbon atoms. But the only difference is how the carbon atoms are configured, how they connect, how they bond. That makes all the difference in, the, in what the end product is, what the manifestation is. So we have to really start to cultivate these deeper ties. This is a photo of my 10-year-old uh, cousin. Now, Neil, on his 10th birthday party, uh, he decides to throw you know, a super soaker party. They all have fun in the back. And then in the afternoon, he does something different. He says, I'm going to invite all my friends and we're going to do a free car wash for the community. So they had their board and their jingle and they, all these strangers pulled up on the driveway. They split up into, you know, the pre-rinse team and the soap team and the rinse team and the tire team. And they were just going at it. Now imagine if you're pulling up in one of these cars. The, the people come out of the car and they're completely bowled over. They're like, what are you doing this for? Is this a fundraiser? That's amazing. I'd like to contribute. They said, no, no, we're not doing this for a fundraiser. We're actually just practicing generosity. It's my friend Neil's birthday, and we're just practicing generosity. And that kind of stuff can really blow you away. All the guards are down. All of a sudden, it's like, yeah, I love you, man. And it's like, oh. <laughs> They're taking photos. And, and these kids, you know, it was amazing to see the connection between these strangers and the kids. But what was even more amazing was how these kids bonded because they served other people together. So you can, you can be Facebook friends, and those loose ties have its value. You can go out to movies with your friend and those deep ties have their values. But you can serve others together and that creates gift ties. And those are priceless. Those are really valuable. So we need to cultivate a network of these gift ties. And the last shift is a shift from scarcity to abundance. Now, this is really a mindset. It's a mindset of tapping into enough. Right? Whenever you say abundance, people look at that and say, well, do you really think there's plenty for everybody? And I think Gandhi tackles it spot on in one sentence. He says, there is enough for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed. So how do we tap into this mindset of enough? 
what you see a photo on their top over there are two giftivism warriors, love warriors, if you want to call them. They, they live in East Oakland. You might have seen the photo. This is Occupy Oakland. They went to jail for meditating. They were completely peaceful. Now, these guys actually do a lot of amazing, interesting stuff. They have a house on the border of two gangs in East Palo Alto, one of the worst places in the country. Most people say there's a lot of scarcity. They have scarcity of safety. They have scarcity of resources. They have all kinds of scarcities. These guys are saying, look, we have enough. Let's look at this with new eyes and see what we can give to other people. They live on Fruitvale Avenue. Lots of fruits there still. And they decided on, they would connect with their neighbors and they say, look, you have all these amazing fruits. They're going to waste. Can we just pluck them and gift them? Neighbors are like, yeah, sure. You guys are going to do that? That's great. They become friends. They go out to people and say, here is organic, fresh, ultra local orange for you. <laughs> and, and it's, and it's a gift from your neighbors in East Oakland. Right? These are not just people on the receiving end that just need to get. They are now contributing. They reframe the whole equation. And like that, they're doing so many different activities, all because they tapped into this mindset of abundance, of enough. So if everyone can share their gifts, we start to really discover new forms of value. So in conclusion, I mean, you know, here are the four shifts, right? When we move from consumption to contribution, we appreciate what we receive and we pay for it. When you move from transaction to trust, you really start to rely on our interconnectedness in a very deep, profound way. When you go from isolation to community, you start to cultivate this network of gift ties. And when you move from scarcity to abundance, you really start to discover your gifts and, and start to experience this generative power of gratitude. It's very generative. So that's really giftivism. It's the practice of radically generous acts that change the world. But it's not just reserved for the Gandhis and the Mother Teresas and the Dalai Lamas of the world. In the bottom right over there is this man that most of you may not have heard of. His name is Julio Diaz. Everyday Joe. He takes, he lives in New Jersey. Every day he takes the subway back home. And one day he's getting off and this kid comes up to him with a knife and he says, give me all your money. He says, okay, well, here's my wallet. Gives it to him. Kid's about to run off and then he yells out at the kid, hey kid, it's a little cold. Do you want my jacket too? He's, the kid's blown away. He hadn't learned this in Robbery 101, so he comes back. <laughs> and he says, hmm, okay, yeah, all right. But now when he comes back, very different energy. Right? They start to connect. They start to bond. And Julio says, I'm about to go have dinner. Do you want to join me? Also not in Robbery 101. <laughs> So they go to dinner and they have this profound conversation. At the end of dinner, Julio says, I'd love to treat you, but you have my wallet. <laughs> so the kid naturally takes out his wallet and gives him, uh, gives it back to Julio. And at that point, Julio says, can I ask for one more thing? Can I have your knife too? And very easily, very naturally, he gives it back to him. Now, that is giftivism because Julio tapped into that spirit of inner transformation and says, this is not a guy who is taking stuff from me. I just want to blow him away. And that capacity, blow him away with generosity. Underneath that generosity is an inner transformation. And once we tap into that inner transformation, all kinds of new possibilities are available to us. As we say in service space, our tagline says, change yourself and change the world. If we make that inner change, outer change is bound to come in a very different way if it comes from the inside out. Joseph Keller used to jog around the Stanford campus and, and he was struck by all the women 
jogging there as well. Why did their ponytails swing from side to side like that? Being a mathematician, he set out to understand why. <laughs> Professor Keller was curious about many things. Why teapots dribble? Or how earthworms wriggle? Till a few months ago, I hadn't heard of Joseph Keller. I read about him in the New York Times, in the obituaries. The Times had half a page of editorial dedicated to him, which you can imagine is premium space for a newspaper of their stature. I read the obituaries almost every day. My wife understandably thinks I'm rather morbid to begin my day with uh, scrambled eggs and a, let's see who died today. <laughs> But if you think about it, the front page of the newspaper is usually bad news and cues man's failures. An instance where bad news cues accomplishment is at the end of the paper in the obituaries. In my day job, I run a company that focuses on future insights that marketers can derive from past data, a kind of rear-view mirror analysis. And we began to think, what if we held a rear-view mirror to obituaries from the New York Times? Were there lessons on how you could get your obituary featured, even if you aren't around to enjoy it? Would this go better with scrambled eggs? <laughs> And so we looked at the data. 2,000 editorial non-paid obituaries over a 20-month period between 2015 and 2016. What did these 2,000 deaths, rather lives, teach us? Well, first we looked at words. This here is an obituary headline. This one is of the amazing Lee Kuan Yew. If you remove the beginning, And the end, you're left with a beautifully worded descriptor that tries to, in just a few words, capture an achievement over a lifetime. Just looking at these is fascinating. Here are a few famous ones. People who died in the last two years, try and guess who they are. That's Prince. Oh, yes. Zara Hadid. So we took these descriptors and did what's called natural language processing, where you feed these into a program. It throws out the superfluous words, the, and, the kind of words you can mime easily in charades, and leaves you with the most significant words. And we did it not just for these four, but for all 2,000 descriptors. And this is what it looks like. Film, theater, music, dance, and of course, art are huge, over 40%. You have to wonder why in so many societies we insist that our kids pursue engineering or medicine or business or law to be construed as successful. And while we're talking profession, let's look at age, the average age at which they achieved things. That number is 37. What that means is you've got to wait 37 years before your first significant achievement that you're remembered for, on an average, 44 years later when you die at the age of 81, on an average. <laughs> Talk about having to be patient. <laughs> of course, it varies by profession. If you're a sports star, you'll probably hit your stride in your 20s. And if you're in your 40s like me, you can join the fun world of politics. <laughs> Politicians do their first and sometimes only commendable act in their mid-40s. <laughs> if you're wondering what others are, here are some examples. Isn't it fascinating the things people do and the things they're remembered for? <laughs> Our curiosity was an overdrive, and, and we desired to analyze more than just a descriptor. So, we ingested the entire first paragraph of all 2,000 obituaries, but we did this separately for two groups of people. People that are famous, and people that are not famous. Famous people, Prince, Ali, Zara Hadid, people who are not famous are people like Jocelyn Cooper, Reverend Curry, or Lorna Kelly. I'm willing to bet you haven't heard of most of their names Amazing people, fantastic achievements, but they're not famous. So what if we analyze these two groups separately, the famous and the non-famous? What might that tell us? Take a look. Two things leap out at me. First, John. <laughs> Anyone here named John should thank your parents <laughs> and remind your kids to cut out your obituary when you're gone. And second, help. We uncovered many lessons from lives well-led. And what those people immortalized in print could teach us, the exercise 
was a fascinating testament to the kaleidoscope that is life. And even more fascinating was the fact that the overwhelming majority of obituaries featured people, famous and non-famous, who did seemingly extraordinary things. They made a positive dent in the fabric of life. They helped. So ask yourselves as you go back to your daily lives, how am I using my talents to help society? Because the most powerful lesson here is, if more people lived their lives trying to be famous in death, the world would be a much better place.